0: We are going to come tonight to the very beginning of chapter 4, the first few verses, but just to read into the letter, let's read from chapter 3, verse 7, through to chapter 4, verse 6. A bit shorter than the reading on the sheet, but chapter 3, verse 7, through to chapter 4, verse 6. Of this gospel, I, that's Paul, was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, that's the plan, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. And then on to chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. "'I therefore a prisoner for the Lord,' that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Now, in between these two passages, there is a prayer, and we'll return uh, to that prayer at the end of the sermon and pray God's inspired prayer to dig it into our hearts and lives. Now, on the back of the service sheet, you'll see three headings, getting our bearings, and then two points. What we'll do tonight is get our bearings and get to the end of point one. That's all. Now getting our bearings first of all uh, in this letter, last Sunday night we began what will be our evening series for most of this term. We will take a short break uh, for two Sunday nights in Luke, but then in Ephesians for the rest of the term. And we're going to work through these chapters slowly, not for its own sake, but just to complement what we often do, which is to take large sections of uh, Bible books, or slightly larger sections than this at least, but we're going to go through this material slowly, and you'll see that tonight. And one of the reasons for that is that there is a lot of practical, applied teaching in these chapters, which I hope will be really helpful for us. Now, in terms of the book as a whole, it divides in two chapters, 1 to 3 is part 1, chapters 4 to 6, part 2. The second half, which will be our focus this term, is full of practical, applied teaching about how we are to live as Christians. And whenever the letter talks about how we are to live as Christians, and this is true not exclusively but largely of the whole of the New Testament, how we are to live as Christians is how we are to live in the local church to which we belong. Your obligation as a Christian to other Christians is primarily to those sitting around you or in the wider church family. That's the second half of the letter, all the practical stuff about how we are to live. And the first half of the letter is about who we are, who we are as Christians and who we are as a church. And the connection of the two is that before you get to the stuff about how you are to live, you've got to know who you are. And that's fundamental to living the Christian life. Because how we are to live is supernatural. It is impossible unless you know who you are. And who we are is supernaturally created. So the first half of the letter is about what God is doing in the world, what God has done in us, and the power that is behind all of that. Now, last Sunday night, we did a high-level overview of chapters 1 to 3. If you missed it, I'd encourage you to look, uh, listen online. And as I said last week, I'd encourage you, as we work through chapters 4, 5, and 6 slowly, especially when we get down the track and we're in chapter 4, and then 5, and then 6, and we're really uh, well into the second half of the book, that on a Sunday afternoon, if you can spare 10 minutes or 20 minutes, just read some of chapters 1, 2, and 3 before you come and listen to another talk about how you're to live. Read stuff about who you are that you can live that way. Now, Ephesians 1 to 3, as uh, I said in much more detail last week, tells us about God's plan, God's call, and God's power. And God's plan has two bits to it. There's a bit that is not yet that is uh, realized in what Paul describes as the fullness of time. And that plan in the fullness of time... When Christ returns, is to unite all things in Him and under Christ. And that's the new creation a perfect world full of Christians from all ages united with Christ in perfect order. That's the not yet of God's plan. That is God's plan in its fullness. Now, what's the present dimension of God's plan? Well, the present dimension of God's plan is that now, on earth, through the church, God's wisdom will be displayed. That's the language of Ephesians. And what is the wisdom? through the church, and remember church means a local church like Chalmers or Redeemer, God's wisdom on display in the church is to show what the new creation, when God's plan is in its full expression, is like. So if you're thinking that who we are as a church in Chalmers, is meant to show people and us what the new creation is like, then you're right, although imperfectly. But the local church, a church like Chalmers or Redeemer, when it's planted, is to be the closest thing on earth to eternity. Why? Because in this building tonight, In this church family, like other ones, all sorts of people have been brought together by God, brought from death to life, by grace through faith, reconciled to God and to one another, united in this Christ. And so in this room, in this church, you get to see, imperfectly, You get to experience imperfectly what it will be like in eternity. Now, last week I used a phrase incorrectly. I said the church on earth, a church like Chalmers, a local church, is a prototype of the new creation. It's not a prototype. It is a a kind of taster Prototype's the wrong expression because that implies there will be a new model. So we're a bit like a car with a lot of dents that needs fixing, a new paint job, and much, much more. But in the end, it's the same model that will be restored. The church is the future. In fact, the future is only the church and the new creation. Does Chalmers have a future? Yes, we will be there, embraced in the eternal church of Christ. Now, that's God's plan. Big deal for the local church. God's call is to you and I to be part of it. That means to be called from death to life, by grace to faith, into a living local church like Chalmers, where there is no rank, and only equality. Uh, Prince Philip crashed his car this week or was in a crash. The police said they would treat him like everybody else, with no favors or privileges. Every Christian is equal with one another and with Christ. God calls us into his plan, into his church, and into his Power. And into his power means that as you sit tonight as a living member of a living local church, if you are a Christian, you are part of God's plan to display to the earth and to the powers that oppose the church in, in the cosmos, that's the language of Ephesians. You are part of God's plan to display His wisdom, His ability to reconcile the irreconcilable, His ability to create communities that would not exist were it not for the gospel and the Holy Spirit. And you are the closest thing on earth to eternity. And so we come to chapter 4. Read with me again. Verse 1, I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk or live, walk is a synonym for live, in a manner that is worthy of the calling. So, living in a manner worthy of the calling is chapters 4 to 6. The calling to which you have been called is chapters 1 to 3, hence the link. Chapter 4 divides into three, Um, Or it did on Thursday it now divides into five okay I'll not tell you what the division of three into is Uh, it, it, it begins by talking about our unity and whenever you hear me speak tonight from God's Word the application is to those of us sitting in this room to this church family and the others who are not part of this congregation who are in this church family Why is that? The way the New Testament speaks about the church, almost always, is not about the visible universal church. It speaks about the church as local churches scattered all over the world. So the commission of Jesus in Matthew 28 is to go and make disciples, baptizing them. That's a commission to plant churches. The New Testament speaks primarily about the church as local churches. And hence, our primary responsibility, the primary focus or expression of our Christian lives is the local church to which we belong. And let me say one more thing before we look at verses 2 and, and, and 3. And to that is to those of you here who aren't Christians. Now, these chapters in Ephesians are addressed primarily to Christians, and that is how, as Christians, we are to live in the context of the local church to which you belong. And you can't live as a Christian unless you are a Christian. That's just logical. In a sense, in a real way, you can be part of a local church. You can if you're not a Christian, you can belong if you're not a Christian, but you can't be part of it or belong to it in the same way. That's just a logical thing. Now, please don't mishear me. I'm not saying you don't belong. Those of you here who aren't Christians know that you belong here. Uh, We love having you here. I love having you here. Others love having you here. You know that because they love having you here. I want his minister to look after you and encourage you as anyone else. We love it you're here, we want you to be here, we want to look after and encourage you, yet with all my heart I want you to belong as a Christian. For that is a deeper, richer, more blessed belonging. And I hope and pray that as we study Ephesians in the next few months, you will increasingly want to belong in that deeper way, want to be a Christian, want to belong to Christ. And how will Ephesians deepen that desire in you and, God willing, lead you to that point by explaining the gospel, yes, the wonderful news that Jesus died for your sins to bring you to God, that Jesus will bring you from death to life by grace through faith. But Ephesians will do something in addition to that. It will teach you, it will describe to you the consequences of Christian conversion. What happens when people become Christians, how it transforms their lives and creates a local church community that is different from anything else you have ever seen before. It will teach you that you will learn from God's Word what a real church is like. And I want to ask you to do this. I want you to listen to what is said and look around. And if the two match up, then it must be God. Who does it? If what is described is what you experience here, then will you not conclude that God and the gospel are true? Now, verses two and three, you'll see that the title I've given them are Eagerly Maintain the Unity of the Spirit. Now, I've gone for that description. Uh, in fact, let's just read the verses again, uh, 1, 2, and 3. I, therefore, a prisoner uh, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, I've gone for the heading, eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit. And uh, verse 3, I think, is the key phrase, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in a bond of peace. What about verse uh, 1, though, of chapter 4? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Well, I think that's a, a link verse for all that comes before and all that comes after. Yes, it's the beginning of this little section in chapter 4, but it's got a more general wider scope in view. So, everything Paul writes about in chapters 4 to 6 is walking in a manner worthy of our calling. But here in chapter 4, verses 1 to 6 and 1 to 3 tonight, walking in a manner worthy of the calling is eagerly maintaining the unity of the Spirit. Now, These can be kind of vague phrases that have a kind of vague spiritual sense. What exactly is the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? It is the supernatural unity we have in this room to one another and to God because of what God has done in each of our lives if we are Christians. If you are a Christian sitting here, God has called you from death to life by grace through faith, reconciling you both to Himself and to your fellow believers. You are united with them in Christ. Those in front of you, behind you, to your left and to your right, and those who come to the other services. Every Christian in this room, in this church family, enjoys exactly every spiritual blessing. Nobody has some and nobody has others. Every Christian will enjoy the fullness of the new creation fully. Every Christian in this church family is called to be a part of the living community of believers called chalmers or redeemer, a living local church in the world that reveals God's wisdom, His plan, the closest thing on earth to eternity. That is the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It is a supernatural, God-given reality. Now, the bond of peace simply describes the state that exists between us. It is what Joe prayed does not exist in the United States of America in many ways. The bond of peace exists in this room. Peace is a subjective experience of being united. But peace is biblically, fundamentally, the objective fact of our unity. We are at peace with one another in this room because God has made it that way. God has created within us, between us, a unity in the Spirit that is the bond of peace. It is a bond of peace because a bond is stronger as cement bonds bricks together to make a house So the Spirit bonds Christians together to make a church, which is the house of God. Now, that's what the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace means. And Paul says to us, and remember the application is to us sitting in this room, maintain it. He says, maintain it the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice it is maintain, and all our instincts are going to default to think it is attain. It's not. It is keep what you have. Do not search for what you haven't got. Maintain it. If I was a preacher of religion, I'd be preaching attain it, because I'm a preacher of the gospel I'm preaching, maintain it, keep it. But the language Paul uses is a motive. Notice he doesn't write, uh, he could have written this, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, maintain the unity of the Spirit. He doesn't write that. Listen to what he says. Just look at it. He says, I urge you, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling and You listen to this right to you in your seat. Be eager, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in this room, in this church. I urge you, be eager. It is exhortational language, urgency and eagerness, urgency and eagerness, urgency and eagerness. Is that a description of me and you with respect to the precious? Precious spirit given unity in this room. Now, urgency and eagerness might describe other aspects of our lives. But do they describe our attitude, our intentional mindset here with respect to church life? Now, all these questions I'm asking from the text tonight, I think as the minister of chalmers and Sam as the minister of redeemers, the answer pretty much is yes. Yes urgency and eagerness why does paul need to impress on us urgency and eagerness in relation to maintaining the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace why because there is always the danger in a church of disunity and when a local church experiences disunity then what happens Well, here's my little list. A, it becomes internally, not externally focused. B, there is no time or energy or vision to reach out with the gospel. C, the community doesn't commend the gospel. It doesn't reveal God's wisdom. It looks nothing like eternity. And D, it's an unhappy place to be on a Sunday. Because you're probably trying to avoid people A disunited church is an ineffective and unhappy church, and disunity is an ever-present threat because it is the ever-present tack of the devil in his opposition against the living church of Christ. Why is that? Because what is God's plan for the church? To unite all us together in this room in one spirit. That is what reveals more than anything else our unity. The fact that we get on with each other, we love each other, we'll give our lives for each other. That's what makes us a church, a different community on earth. So what is the devil going to try and do? Break that down. Now, how come disunity is such a risk if what fundamentally and supernaturally defines us is the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? So why on earth, if God has given us the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, and he is the most powerful being or agency in the world, do we have to be eager to maintain it? It's a good question. Does it mean that the Spirit is not strong enough, powerful enough to keep us united? No, it is because we are work in progress. God is changing us as individuals and as a church. Perfect unity is not yet. But who we fundamentally are in our inner being is controlled by the Spirit. Let me explain it like this. You may have heard this illustration before. I was going to say from me, but uh, I didn't hear it from me first, so from whoever it was. Before you became a Christian, your life was like a ship in enemy hands. You've heard that illustration. Becoming a Christian means being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit takes control of the bridge of the ship that is your life. And because the Holy Spirit controls the bridge, that is decisive. God is now in control. But there are a lot more battles to fight to take part take back all the different parts of the ship from enemy hands and you will encounter pockets of resistance that are very stubborn that ring true with your life how resistant some take a lifetime to master but god the holy spirit in your life and god the holy spirit in our corporate life, because our corporate life is made up of your lives, has the bridge. God has His hands on the wheel. But the battle all over the ship goes on. Therefore, back to the language of Ephesians, Paul exhorts us to urgency, uh, to eagerness, to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We are to be committed, every one of us, to maintaining it in our fellowship, in our local church, because disunity is a real threat. So I, as your minister, urge you to be eager about maintaining unity. And yet, surely, we don't just strive for unity because we have to, but because we want to. Because we are eager, are we not, to live in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called? We want to be a church that is worthy of our calling because we want to be a church that is worthy of the name of Jesus. Do you want to? Yes, you do. Why do you want to? Because God, uh, you're all smiling when I said yes, you do. I don't think you're smiling to humor the minister, are you? Yes, you do, because God has called you from death to life, saved you by grace through faith, blessed you with every spiritual blessing, called you to a perfect eternity with Christ, called you into a living church. With all its warts and faults and bumps and scrapes and rust, makes my life far better to be part of it. And I trust yours. So that encourages us to want to be eager to maintain unity, and there is also a note of urgency, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, because if this church, along with the other living churches, is the only place that God's eternal vision is to be revealed in the world, then an awful lot of people need to experience that. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, is that a description of us individually? Is it a description of us corporately? And there are different times in church life when you could preach on this as a minister, and these questions, is it a description of us individually? Is it a description of us corporately? Would ring more or less true. They do ring true. They ring true of Redeemer. Redeemer. And of Chammers now, which is when you need to, with eagerness, maintain that unity. Now, you keep noticing I check my uh, phone. The reason I do that is I'm absolutely determined to shorten up this term. I mean, that's 30 minutes, and it included a long reading. So I'm nearly done. And it is important. We are trying hard to do that because when I sit there on Sunday nights, I find it hard to stay awake. It's important. It's important we just don't bounce over big stuff. But let me finish with uh, this. Let me see how many pages there are. Two and a half. It's not bad. We thought a lot about what the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace is. We thought about urgency and eagerness to maintain it, but surely the question that's left is how? What are we, what are we to do? Please, sir, I want to know what to do. The answer I think is an extraordinary answer. There it is in verse 2. What a supersonic, theologically complex answer. Be humble, be gentle, be patient, and put up with stuff. What an extraordinary answer that is. That is how we maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What strikes you about that how-to? Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. It is not complicated, nor this. And here, here's the challenge. It's not beyond any of us. Which has to be the application of a passage about unity in the bonds of the Spirit. It's not beyond any of us. This morning, Roger reminded us that a spirit-filled church is a church where people speak about Jesus using words from the Bible. Here in Ephesians chapter uh, 4, verses 1, or, or I was going to say 1 to 6, but 1 to 2 and a half, a spirit-filled church is a church which is full of humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another. And please don't hear these as soft things. They're far from soft. Humility heads the list. Humility concerning what? Well, for every Christian, humility with respect to God. Humility conscious of what He has done for us. Humility from remembering. Listen, Christian, God has called you from death to life. Well, that humbles us. God has called you by grace, through faith. Humility with respect to the power of God at work, even in our little local churches. Humility with respect to the privilege and responsibility of being called to be part of a living gospel church. Humility with respect to our daily needful dependence on God. All of that is what Paul means by humility, but it's not the main point of what he means by humility. There's something we need to appreciate about the church in Ephesus. It is made up of Jews and Gentiles. Both of these groups converted to Christ, Jewish converts and Gentile converts. Now, in the early days of the church, humanly speaking, that was just radical, Jews and Gentiles did not associate with each other, let alone live in community with each other. Yet they have been reconciled, united in Christ through the gospel. And Paul focuses on that a good deal in the first half of the letter. He points out to the Gentiles they are fully included. But imagine the local church in Ephesus walking in that door tonight and sitting down in here. Everybody in their human nature hardwired to come into this building and not sit together. Some do in the church in Ephesus, but by and large the Jewish Christians are on that side and the Gentile Christians are on that side. And after the service they gravitate to different coffee stations. And what Paul is doing in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, as he addresses everyone, is that as he addresses everyone, his eyes, if he were reading this letter out in the room, would say to the Jews, eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit, be humble. Don't think that you are specially privileged. And then his eyes would turn to the Gentiles. Don't think the church is for you. What does it look like with us? Well, all the things that would divide us if we were not Christians, background, wealth, jobs, education, past. There's a good one. Past. Ethnicity. Right down to the level of whether or not we have shared interests, whether we like the same things, or whether we like each other. The gospel breaks all these barriers down. And it breaks down the barriers of preference what we like musically, what we don't. Our convictions on secondary issues, how older people view younger people, how much time older people spend with younger people in a church, and so on and so forth. It doesn't mean we all have to think the same thing or like the same thing or mix up our small groups. That's creating unity in a worldly way. Unity is a spiritual, supernatural thing. And the gospel takes all these barriers down. Our church community is where people who would not otherwise be together or who would choose to be together are together, and the unity and the tightness of that group is supernaturally extraordinary. Are you humble with respect to others in this church family, Minister, elder, small group leader, are you humble? Older Christian, mature Christian, sorted Christian, gifted Christian, are you humble? As a Bible teacher, a practical server, are you humble? what about gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another? Remember, just have a look, don't look. Have a look in your mind as to who is. Well, have a look at the person in front of you. You've all got eyes bearing into the back of your heads. Remember that person is work in progress, who makes mistakes, who messes up, And is being transformed into the likeness of Christ slower than you would like. And as you remember them, remember you are work in progress. Remember you make mistakes. Remember you mess up. Remember you are being transformed into Christ likeness slower than them. And so Paul says be gentle. Be patient. Bear with one another. Has God been gentle, patient, bearing with you? That sounds like a rod. I'm going to pull the rug out from under your feet. It's not a rod. Here's why it's not a rod. Has God been gentle, patient, bearing with you? God now lives in you by his Spirit, so you have supernatural capacity for gentleness, patience, forbearance, like you've never had the capacity in this room for humility gentleness patience forbearance is far more than we ever realize so this week in your interactions in your texts and your emails in your prayers for others in your conversations about them when they cannot hear be gentle patient and bear with them in love. Now maybe next time we'll come back and spend a little bit of time on what it means practically to be gentle, patient, and bear with one another. Let me leave you with this thought, which is not in the passage, so I'll get um, a bit of flack from that this week. But um, it's um, been nagging away at me um, all day, so I'm going to tell you. Uh, on the subject of unity in the church there's a little bit of me that looks out here tonight and thinks goodness me how on earth can these people be nice to each other the holy spirit there's a bit of me that looks out and says we are far less united humanly than we like to think because we're actually quite diverse But there's a bit of me that looks out and thinks this church community here is not as diverse as the gospel is capable of. Does that make sense? What I mean by that is that I'm the minister of Chalmers. Last night, Sally and I spent an evening with the minister of Charleston in Dundee. Now, one of the things against us is in our cities. You build middle-class communities in some bits of the city, and you build other or working-class communities in other bits of the city, so you don't meet. But surely the gospel is even more powerful than what I see before my eyes. And what swung me to tell you this tonight is we drove back at midnight into Edinburgh and we got petrol. And in the garage, there was a, a bus, a Scottish Rugby Union bus. And uh, emblazoned uh, across the bus was the logo for the Scottish Rugby Union. You know what it is? As one. As one. And I thought, wow, oh, I never realized they got that from Ephesians. Never ever give up on thinking that the gospel is powerful enough and maybe this is a, a something of a kind of encouragement to Redeemer who get to start from scratch never ever think the gospel is not powerful enough to have this room full of this half of the room full of people from Charleston this half of the room full of people from Morningside. And over time, they start loving and living like they will for eternity. Never, ever, ever underestimate the power of the gospel. Because even our cities are built in a way that works against it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these encouraging and practical words in Ephesians about unity. We thank you for the unity that this church family here does have and we benefit from, and we contribute to. Thank you for the unity of the launch team and the leadership team of Redeemer. And we pray, Lord, that each one of us would heed these words in Ephesians well, that we would be eager to maintain this unity in the Spirit. I thank you for the practical way we are to do that, that none of us can escape or feel incapable of to be humble, to be gentle, to be patient, and to cut each other slack. So give us, Lord, that eagerness, and continue to keep this church and Redeemer Church united, and thereby outward looking. And help us, Lord, as we have thought at the end of the talk, never, ever, ever, ever to underestimate the power of the gospel, to bring communities that all that is in this world seeks to divide together under Christ. Lord, bless the church in Charleston tonight with all the extraordinary needs and struggles they have. And bless the church or the living churches in Edinburgh tonight with all the extraordinary needs and struggles they have. For Jesus' sake. Amen.